Hello and welcome into another episode of the Esports Network podcast in partnership with Reuters. As always, I'm your host, Mitch Dreams, and today we are talking to Scott Boomser Bednarski. He was competing in esports events over a decade ago as a player on the Championship Gaming Series. In Australia, Scott has competed successfully in nine different FPS PC titles, winning national championship tournaments in CS Source, CSGO, CS 1.6, TF2, TFC, DOD, Half-Life, Call of Duty, Left 4 Dead, and more. Now Scott works as Global Marketing Director of Repeat.gg. We just recently had Aaron Fletcher from Repeat on the show, so while we're sure to be touching on his experiences with the company, that show goes a lot more in depth on what Repeat does. On this show, primarily we're going to be talking about the early age of esports, especially TV shows like the Championship Gaming Series. We're also going to talk about how the first esports boom ran straight into the 2008 recession and how players dealt with that at the time, the esports scene in Australia, and lessons from back then that guide where esports is today. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be here. I'm excited to talk with you. After I talked with Aaron last week or two weeks ago, he was like, you need to talk to Scott because Scott has some awesome stories. Uh, from back in the day. So first th- first thing to start, take us back to the days of the championship gaming series and set the stage for people who weren't watching esports at the time. What did that event look like? So back then when the championship series was first announced in the Oceania region, there wasn't much um, news or information about the, the series. There was no like real announcements of a TV show or these large acquisitions that they were doing in North America and in Europe of these top teams back then. So the the whole prestige of it, or the whole um, the whole production value, just wasn't seen from the community in Australia. And the main game in Australia still was Counter Strike One Point Six, um, and the game was to be played in Counter Strike Source. So when that news came out, a lot of the top teams or the top players back then didn't really have much of an interest in converting just to be into this um, random tournament that was to be played in Asia in in, in the Malaysian region. So um, what actually occurred was minimum um, exposure to it. Only about six or seven teams from the Oceania region was to play this qualifier with not much news at all. Um, I was actually part of the winning team. I was actually playing Counter-Strike 1.6 and I actually retired around that stage. And um, when they realized that they had to go to Malaysia, there was an age limit. Uh, the Championship Gaming Series said that you must be 18 plus. Um, I I'm assuming this got to do with the contracts that people had to sign, but there was no mentions of salaries and um, full-time work and, and all that type of stuff for a professional player. So I was actually called out of re- retirement from my brother, who was a part of the uh, part of the winning team, and said, do you want to come over to Malaysia? And I was like, oh, free trip overseas. That was like the bee's knees in esports in Oceania. There wasn't many opportunities to travel overseas. I've done it a couple of times uh, at this stage, but it was really rare. So I decided to come out of retirement and go over to Malaysia. And we just knew nothing about anything. Even our manager knew pretty much nothing. And uh, we had one team from New Zealand, one team from Australia, both CalStrike source teams were flown over to Malaysia. We had to battle it out between us on stage. Um, to determine which team would uh, represent Oceana. Uh, but when we got there, 
Uh, we're in this bus and we just had no idea where we're going. We're taking all these back roads in Malaysia. We're just like, oh, this is going to be one of those events that you read up about where everything's not organized and, um, you know, the conditions aren't, you know, fantastic. But we got there and they took us to the most, to, to this day, it's probably one of the best hotels, resorts I've ever stayed in in my life. Um, it was a fantastic facility and they had all the teas from Asia um, there as well. So we had China, we had Dubai, we had Malaysia, we had um, Korea, we had Singapore, um, all those countries were there from Asia representing their, their regions. And we're the only region that yet to determine who was going to represent the CalStrike side of things. Um, but yeah, when we first got there, it was just fantastic. And long story short, we ended up competing against the New Zealand team. It was meant to be telecasted, but circumstances happened where we couldn't get studio time so we had to find a random net cafe in malaysia that would accept us to to play against each other with the uh cgs officials and then yeah we ended up defeating the new zealand team quite convincingly and next minute we know that we get told that we're playing on a televised live production that's going to be sent all over the world to play against all the asian teams um and yeah um it was a roller coaster from then that's what everything pretty much started roller coaster is always an accurate way of uh describing those events i I just picture going down some some background you're like oh there's no way that this is gonna work out because we have all seen and heard the stories of people from esports in the early days where it's like uh what was it gamers in paradise was was one of them that was super classic and just was like they were supposed to hold it outside and then the monsoon hit or something like that uh that was even like in like 2014 or something i can't remember but uh it's so funny for it to for you to just have no idea what you're expecting going in and then you end up in this gorgeous resort and uh it kind of encapsulates where esports was in that time frame there was a ton of money being invested but the organization wasn't really there the structure wasn't really there uh but there was a ton of momentum nonetheless yeah, look, the championship gaming series was next level. So, you know, that was just the Asia region. Um, when we came top four in Asia, we got sat in a room and we got told, here's contracts in front of you guys. You guys are getting paid 30,000 USD per season. Um, you guys will have to do this. You guys have to do that. These are your commitments. You must fly to America. You must stay there for extended uh, extended period of time. We pay. We we also pay you guys dime money. So dime money was like an allowance that we got on top of our pay because we were living away from home. Um, and that's where we got really excited when we started reading these contracts. And they, you know, they put us in a room and they had the whiteboard up and they had a representative from the news show um, or the television show, kind of like explaining all the all the rules and the contracts to us. And that's where we got extremely excited because the contract was telling us things that like we had to go to America anytime they asked us to. We have to fly to the next Asian region next year, and it was just extremely exciting. And then as that was happening, I felt like they did everything kind of ad hoc. They ended up kind of like acquiring Team 3D, which was like one of the biggest North American teams. Team Complexity, which was one of the best 1.6 teams ever as well. It just seemed as if like it was all unraveling all at the same time. There was no like... They just pretty much did it all, all at once. Um, so every single week, there was new news about how big this championship gaming series was going to be. And it's not until we actually got to America that, and we saw the production value when you know it was happening at the Sony Studios and we had rehearsals and we had to do like 
player interviews and we had to do media training that we start to understand like, wow, this has not been done before. This is a new level of esports right now. Um, and obviously with that, there were so many great stories, but at the same time, as you know, what happened in the championship gaming series kind of set the tone for um, esports contracts and um, how to run events, I guess. Um, it kind of set back esports, some people do say, in the championship gaming series because it wasn't just Counter-Strike. They had FIFA, they had Dead or Alive, which was like a fighting game. They had uh, Project Gotham Racing as well. Um, so there's a bunch of game titles involved in it, but I really do think that championship gaming series, as much as it advanced um, esports at the time, um, the way it was handled and the backdoor management that kind of occurred with embezzling money, um, it kind of set a Set it kind of gave like a bad taste in the mouth of esports too to a lot of people. Yeah, could you go into that that saga a little bit? It was even before my time uh, when that was going down. You know, I remember watching some of those events and being like, "Oh wow, this is cool." But yeah, I, I don't think I knew what embezzling was. I was twelve at, during that time. So uh, break us down, sort of what happened and what sent the league down, and why some people do frame it as like, "Hey, this ultimately set esports back." So I think what ended up happening was that it was more centered around the television show than it was about the esports titles. So all the esports titles, the rules and the game format was kind of changed to suit live television. Um, although it was live, we, we obviously did the rehearsals. Um, everything was kind of scripted in a sense. Um, I remember at one stage we had to uh, showcase us winning the match before we actually played the tournament. Um, this was so that if we do celebrate, we do jump up and down and go crazy, that they had the right camera angles. They had the right um, shots, per se. Um, so all that type of stuff was kind of like rehearsed. And I do remember at one stage, they forgot to do the the play interviews beforehand. And we just lost the grand final in Asia. And they ended up um, interviewing us um, after we lost heavily. And they were like, okay, so we need you guys to pretend that you guys haven't played yet. So we want you guys to be excited. So they put the microphone to my face and like, how do you guys feel like you guys got to go this game? You know, it's just like, we just lost. We don't want to be interviewed right now. But, um, you know, it just, it was this, the reason why people kind of saw it as a negative is, is because of that. They, they changed the game format. It was like one minute round times in Cal-Strike. So you pretty much just had to run out of spawn. And it just made real <laughs> sloppy, real sloppy Cal-Strike. So you had these, Best players you can ever imagine. Like you had players like Frond from Complexity, um, Shagua as well. You had all these top players that have always played Counter-Strike at a high level, and then they were told or forced to play in a certain way. They were play. They were forced to play in these one-minute round times. There was no such thing as economy. Everybody got sixteen thousand dollars start money, um, and this was so that the match would be over in ten to fifteen minutes for live viewing. And they did the same things for the other games as well. So it didn't make viewing really amazing if you were an esports enthusiast but if you're somebody that didn't know what esports was i guess it was quite interesting to watch um and say that in 2007 they changed um a lot of the management so they ended up hiring other people to try to get more viewership as far as i'm aware viewership was actually increasing um over the two years so the second year they had almost doubled the viewership i don't believe viewership was the problem i think what ended up happening was that the people that received the funding was spending it elsewhere. They were investing money and that's where the embezzlement type of stuff came around. And then obviously when this got found out and the economy was crashing in 2008, it literally ended abruptly. Um, everybody in the championship gaming series from Europe to America to Asia were all told via 
social media because there was an article release saying that Championship Gaming Series is no longer. There was no email sent out. The managers got phone calls from everybody be like, is this true? Is this true? What's this article saying? It was like posted on like a got frag back then. Um, and there was just nothing. We just lost our jobs in a day. Um, no explanation, no back pay, no pay forward. Um, literally just told on the spot. It was over. The, the way that leagues and, and teams even handled players at, at that time was really wild. But at the same time, too, they, they just throw you a ton of money. And it, it almost felt like there was like a, well, we're getting paid to play video games. So like, what what else are we going to do? But now as we look back at it, it does feel like esports has professionalized, not to the degree that it probably should be. We're still a little ways away on all of that, but at least there is... Uh, a little bit more care. You know that the uh, franchise leagues aren't just going to completely disappear at, at any moment. Uh, taking us back to that 2008 recession, could you expand it to the uh, wider esports world? Because that's always just sort of marked as the, okay, there was a ton of momentum, major league gaming, uh, you know, just the creation of new teams and leagues. And then it all sort of shuts down in 2008. And, uh, how did the esports industry deal with that? Did it feel like the end of esports in a way? Like, was there always a like, hey, this is going to uh, persevere and this will come back? But right following that, it seemed like almost all the momentum just kind of stopped really quickly. Look, I think esports can be really. This is such a big thing to say. I believe and it's not much like there's not much backing this. It's just my personal belief. I believe esports survived because of a handful of individuals that just truly had the passion for the game. If I look back at the championship gaming series, you had people like DJ Wheat, you had Red Eye, you had top players in the industry like Heaton, who became a player manager. A lot of the player managers were actually um, former professional players and um, esports figures. It's not like they didn't have the right management or the right um, players. They had everything to build. They had a great recipe to create something fantastic. But I think back then, gamers didn't know their worth. Gamers just got told what to do. And even these player managers at the time and these high executive people that we see today, like DJ Wheat is very high up in the industry right now. Red Eye was before he ended up uh, retiring and leaving the esports scene. All these people were strong figures in the scene. Um, and I think they just got told what to do and they just did it. Well, even though they knew they probably wasn't going to work because we just were so confident in like having these people putting funding behind us. I think then what happened when the recession occurred, the whole industry just kind of got shook up. There was no large investments. There's not much money going around. I think just a bunch of individuals ended up just creating their own communities, ended up running their own tournaments, and it just grew from there. It it was just like a seed that was planted, and it just grew. And then over time, these individuals were very strong figureheads. Uh, They had a lot of experience that just said, no, we're not doing that. That's not... That's not what we do anymore. And I guess championships game series is always looked back at as like the thing of what not to do. What could happen if you just allow a, a major company or a television show just to take charge and tell you what it needs to be done. I think esports has kind of grew a backbone at the same time, if that makes sense. I certainly think that there is some important lessons. You know, there's always growing pains with any fledgling industry you can go back to that time in all the traditional sports leagues and there's a whole bunch of decades really of 
uh, weird things like that that happen in unprofessional aspects. And esports, in some ways, actually went through it a lot quicker. One uh, of the definite changes that happened post that you could sort of trace back some of the what we think of esports today from what came out of those moments and those experiences. First of all, you had League of Legends get released the year after in 2009, now the biggest esport in the world. But you also had this push towards, okay, they this is what they tried to do for TV is they tried to change the game entirely. We need a digital-based platform that will allow these games to be played as they exist. And that eventually leads to Justin.tv, now Twitch. Uh, in in some ways, like you could trace back the okay, TV holds all the cards here, but we need to make a TV built for gaming. Uh, and now it's Twitch, which is a multi-billion-dollar business. Um, we're also seeing esports push back towards TV, and they've always sort of had a small presence on that. E League was the primary form of esports on TV for the last five years or so. Uh, and even the COVID pandemic over spring, we saw a huge uptick in uh, different esports competitions, primarily sports simulations, uh, finding their way onto TV to replace the fact that sports weren't happening anymore. Could you talk about sort of how the medium of TV and esports has evolved from your perspective and somebody who competed on it? Uh, how can it work in long term? Because no no TV-based esports competition has really ever taken off. Uh, the most successful over the COVID pandemic was actually eNASCAR, surprisingly. Uh, so what, from your perspective, is some of the things that stand in the way of making that format really take off uh, in even things that have persevered over the last decade? Uh, look, I believe gamers just have the power right now. I, I truly believe that what's just occurred is that gamers or the individuals that are organizing these events or try to get esports back on the map just they, they they just adapted we just adapted like we took over twitter twitter is kind of like the gaming central hub of social media now um it doesn't have to be was a built for esports twitch originally wasn't built for esports yeah just the tv kind of did um real life viewing and and um you know chatting and drinking with his friends and then gamers started to use the platform i guess gamers just adapted they didn't need tv anymore um and then what happened is when you're just that large when you just have such a large community that just goes wherever the the scene is we didn't need tv um, and I think what's happening now is that these mediums need us now. Um, traditional advertising doesn't work anymore. Uh, and they've found new ways to try to engage these uh, demographic that esports players or competitive players or viewers or esports enthusiasts are these days. Um, you know, I just, I just believe that TV is something that... Like TV is like... We, we all think of TV as being something very big and like the mainstream but at the end of the day it's not anymore you know netflix has now taken over um twitch has taken over for live streaming more people watch the live streaming of the nba finals online than they do on traditional television sets um it's just more so that they need us there's this whole discussion about esports being part of the olympics and should we care and a lot of the biggest figureheads in esports nowadays be like we should care whether they think that esports is fit for the Olympic Games or not. We don't need them to grow. It's not like esports is going to boom because the Olympic Games has picked it up. Yeah, it gets more of the limelight, but I think people just know anyway. 
the whole thing be like gamers can make money from playing games nowadays where the traditional media kind of sells that selling point. I don't think it's even a selling point anymore. I think it's just more widely known from day to day. So um, my main thing is that I just think we're always going to adapt with whatever's out there. Wherever the community is, it's going to grow itself. It's, it's self-sustaining. Esports is self-sustaining pretty much. Yeah, gamers kind of created their own way of having the power is they they took it and we're like okay when it has to go through tv we were not having the power so we're going to create our own uh areas where we can live our own companies and now really in the last few years the rest of the world's catching up to like oh wow these platforms that were built by gamers you talk about twitch and uh even discord and, and stuff like that are incredibly incredibly valuable properties uh and now we're using their base in gaming to expand into other industries as well. So it's kind of a fascinating look at how the power balance has shifted. And now Twitch is out here uh, vying for some sports property rights. You know, they're, they're pulling up FIBA rights and it's something else. So it, it's funny how far things come in 10 years from gaming, primarily running through TV to, okay, now the gaming platform is actually trying to poach sports uh, from, from you guys. But I feel like people have always tried to um, poach esports too like facebook gaming did a very large push on trying to get a lot of the major events streamed i think esl might have even had a deal with them at some point and they just had to revert back to twitch i think youtube is kind of being a little bit successful in terms of gaming and and sometimes they have had live events on it but it's just twitch is just has a betterment itself or has cemented itself sorry as the home of esports viewing um, and that's because gamers chose that. So I don't think you can buy gamers to to convert to a, a type of platform. So I guess that's why a lot of these investments are kind of taking that gamble, that risk of investing in these gaming-built platforms to try to make sure that they understand the audience better than they could ever do so. It, it's fascinating. And YouTube, I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've been following like the Call of Duty and the Overwatch leagues, and they they've started to become a home for live viewership. It definitely took a little while, but you know, I think we saw that most pronounced when uh, Mixer poached Ninja and Shroud and it was like, okay, get two of the biggest uh, voices on Twitch. If they leave this platform, what happens to their audience? And I think both of them underestimated how reliant upon Twitch uh, they were for that audience. You know, there's no question that they knew they were going to take a slash, but uh, to see ninja especially go from just like 2xing every other creator on the platform uh to going over to mixer and being kind of uh, an afterthought you know it all worked out well for both of them they had to get their bag but it's uh, uh quite funny just to see how how much power twitch still holds in the space and everybody who tries to break off of it which we saw over the last year was like nope it, it, it's still twitch it all still runs through uh runs through twitch here no, definitely. Like, you, you know, you got Facebook, you got Microsoft with Mixer, um, you got YouTube, you know, Amazon. You, they've they've all tried to, like, capture the space, but it's like almost like esports and gaming can't be bought. Um, it doesn't matter how much money you put in there. The 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 fan base is just going to go where, the, the, where it is. And I think we built our own um, positions in esports our own platforms that we all utilize and use. And just it's so hard to transition to anything else, to be honest. 
Definitely. Speaking of different platforms and different companies built by gamers, it is one of the cool things about esports is that so many of the the companies that exist right now are just people who were uh, oftentimes competing professionally in esports 10 years ago. And now they're like, well, the, the industry needs this or it needs that. And repeats one of those things, you know, coming from you and from Aaron. Uh, how has the marketing world specifically, as your global marketing director for repeat, how has the marketing world evolved? Uh, do you remember any conversations with brands or brand reps back in those early days of esports? Uh, can you compare that to the conversations that you're having these days? I think back then, it's not just esports. I think back then, impressions and views was like the end all. It's what people wanted. It's what brands were after. Um you know, these banner placements and these logo placements attached to platforms or other tournaments were considered as valuable. Nowadays, it's just it's just um, overwhelming now. And I just feel like what brands want these days and how it's evolved is that brands want engagement. They want user engagement. They want user stories. They want content is the key to um, having a successful campaign in esports nowadays. Um, you know, I just, you know, I don't know if you saw just the other day, but there was an argument between Hastro and Courage on Twitter. It was like a bit of a Twitter beef. <laughs> yeah, I saw and, that. <laughs> and I thought that was fantastic because it's about time these individuals ended up being a bit less robotic, a bit more like they 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 seem more real, you know. And I, what I liked about that argument was Hastro was kind of saying like, "Oh, post another ad on your Twitter. Not everything's about views and 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 ads." And I'm just like. Yeah, look, I understand they try and get their bag, but I think esports viewership and esports enthusiasts that watch these streamers and these professional players when they advertise, I feel like these gamers just disconnect. You know when it's an ad, you you are, you expect it. It's like watching ads on television. Oh, the ads are on. I feel like gamers are now that that point. They're like, okay, I understand we need this. I understand this guy's probably getting paid five thousand dollars to just tell us how awesome this headset is. Um, I feel like the audience really disconnects. And I think what brands need to be focusing on now or what they are starting to realize is that they need direct engagement. Rather than saying, hey guys, this new headset, it's got this awesome technology, blah, 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 blah. Gamers are not going to listen. What the gamers would like to hear is like, this this company that's um, sponsoring me, sponsoring the stream, we're giving away a hundred pairs just for my audience. If if you're an avid watcher, um, like this comment or leave something in the chat or um, you know respond to this tweet, and I'll be giving away a hundred pairs of headsets, and that creates like some type of engagement straight away. Um, and that's what I think brands are starting to learn that just sponsoring these esports teams and sponsoring these televised um, tournaments, it's it's just nothing to them. It's just whiteboard uh, for for viewers. Um, I just don't think it's the way to get your message across if you're a brand. You need to come up with some type of user experience, some type of user engagement um, to be able to be successful these days. Uh, gamers are just oversold, I, I believe, anyway. Interesting. You know, I usually hear the flip perspective when asking questions about that. The gamers are still undersold, undertap. Uh, there haven't been as many sponsorships. I do agree that interactivity is like the crucial aspect. You know, gaming, even more so than sports, is inherently interactive. Uh, the games, you know, Twitch chat goes live. Uh, you have to make sure that people are so uh, engaged with the with the broadcast that 
they're not switching over to play the game itself, which is always a a common issue or a common thing that esports titles have to solve. So it, it's interesting to hear you think that they're oversold. Are there any brands that you think are doing a really good job of uh, connecting with these gamers, especially uh, the way that Repeat operates? So can you can you talk a little bit about how Repeat brings that interactivity to, to brands? Yeah, sure. So w- what we do is that it's kind of like we tap into the gamers hobby themselves we don't tap into the viewership where the advertisements are usually seen so what we kind of say the message is, is that this brand is providing you a chance to win cash prizes and with those tournaments what we also do is with the marketing that we attach to these branded tournaments is we try and get these user experiences so these experiences may be a qualifier where if you come at the top of the leaderboard, you get a chance to play with your favorite influencers, or maybe you might be entered into the competitive scene to play against the pros. You'd be invited to the professional tournament. Um, We do all sorts of different ways to create these engagement through content. And usually we do that pretty much all the time with, with influencers. But while they're doing that, while the influencers are sending over this message that, hey, this brand has provided you this tournament, these guys are now engaged in playing the game like they normally would but they come back to the platform on a daily basis because they want to see their updated scores, how well they're performing on these leaderboards. There's no restrictions on when you can play, what skill level you must be, um, certain time zones. There's none of that. People can play as much as they want, as little as they want, any time they want in these branded tournaments because they usually last from anything for three days, a week, or a month. And what they're constantly seeing is this, this brand connection they go, oh, what, what am I doing in the Papa John's tournament? Oh, okay, cool, sweet. Oh, I'm coming top five in the Papa John's tournament. Oh, um, I need to go play more so I can get um, a better score in the Papa John's tournament. And we found out that with our analytics that a user that's engaged in one of our tournaments or competing in one of our tournaments comes back to the platform 3.6 times per day. Um, so that means there's some gamers that are coming back 10 times a day. There's some guys that come back once every two days, but they're constantly seeing that brand awareness. And there's a lot of these experiences that we add with it, where you get to play with an influencer or the influencers um, playing within the tournament. And he's now pr- uh, promoting his results and his participation in the event. So that's the difference that we do. I really wish that I could kind of give you some insight and knowledge of what brands have said to us um, in, in discussions. But I can honestly say that there's a couple really large brands you'd be very surprised at that have sponsored really large gaming esports teams and, and done you know the whole, we're now proudly sponsored by, you know, whatever, this big organization. And they've come back to us and they've been like, that didn't work. It was just stagnant advertising on a jersey or sometimes the, the influencers were having on their stream. They just didn't see the engagement. And they've ran a campaign with us at one-tenth of the cost of, of a monthly bill for that esports organization. And they've just seen a lot more engagement, a lot of uh, player interactions um, than they would with sponsoring a team per se. So there's a lot of brands out there that are starting to figure out that what they need as well is always ongoing tournaments. Um, every campaign that you see is usually one big hit. It's usually on this day, on this weekend, there's this big promotion happening. All the influencers are engaged. And then the influencers next week jump onto another brand. You need that brand to be um, kind of ingrained in the society or the industry or the scene constantly or for longer periods of time for that brand messaging to get across. 
Definitely. You know, you could see some brands that have become almost synonymous with gaming partnerships, G Fuel, one one huge one, even HyperX and some of the, the gaming chair brands did a really good job of that. Now they're seeing more competition from uh, your mainstay brands, your Herman Millers, your JBLs than they used to. But uh, some brands just showed continued investment in this community for years. For and some all the way up till maybe a decade or or longer, uh, in the case of some some really unique brand partnerships, so it's pretty remarkable. And I think the brands that do show that continued investment find the dividends and they find the the audience willing to accept them. Well, there's a reason why they're staying in esports, right? It's a reason why they create their own social accounts. You look at a lot of these um, brands like you know HTC and Bud Light and Red Bull and just to name a few, they've created their own esports portals within their platforms on the websites or with on social media. So, you know, Red Bull has Red Bull esports and HTC have HTC esports. They all have their own um, kind of platforms to constantly be involved in the scene. What we've also found out with these brands is that sometimes setting up these campaigns take a long time and they have all these IPs, they have these social accounts, they have these websites and usually when they run tournaments, they're having to set up these tournaments through a bunch of influencers, through the agency that they work with and they're only able to do it in three-month increments and what they really want is to be constantly involved in the scene um, throughout the whole, um, whole year or the whole financial cycle. So that's what we're kind of offering at Repeat is these continuously ongoing esports tournaments that's constantly engaging with the audience over and over again, week to week. People know if they come back to the platform, they're going to see the Papa John's tournament or the Red Bull tournament per se. It's a fascinating value prop and a way that really evolves the giveaway that has always been uh, such a staple of esports and gaming marketing strategies, uh, and this is a way to get, you know continue to introduce the interactivity and to find the commonality, which is that generally people like to play games more than they like to watch them. Across all esports, you're always going to have a bigger player base. The only true exception is like the massive top level events. But you know if you're going to take the player base of Call of Duty while CDL matches are going on, it's going to be twenty times. Uh, as many people playing as it is watching those CDL events on YouTube. So very fascinating and interesting uh, company. Scott, I appreciate you coming on, sharing your stories from eSports. Uh, I, I was going to say heyday. I don't think that's an accurate term. Uh, the the Wild West, the roller coaster of eSports as it used to exist. Uh, thank you for coming on. appreciate you sharing those stories, those perspectives. Always fascinating to hear. No, thank you very much. And I'll just go on that last point you said. There's a statistic out there that got released a year or two ago that said that you know competitive gamers uh, view esports 3.5 hours per week, but they play the game 15 hours per week. So that's the target that you want. You want to get it while they're playing the games and not while they're viewing. Um, obviously, increase um, exposure. But anyway, thank that's you for having me on board. That's a great stat. I'm stealing that one. I'm using that one. 3.5 hours a week for watching it, 15 hours a week for playing it. And it's always why uh, you can't change the core function of the game if you want to attract esports viewers because they are exactly. players first and viewers second. So to take it That's full the lesson learned. Yes. Lesson learned. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So this was Scott Bednarski from the Championship Gaming Series now at repeat.gg. Uh, Scott, thanks again for coming on. It was a blast talking to you. To our audience, this show is coming out on Friday. Our last show was an 
interview with New Belgium Community Manager Patrick Morgan. We talk about beer and video games and the unique uh, criteria that beer brands have to meet when they're advertising to gaming audiences, making sure that over 70% of their audience is over the age of 21 and how that poses some complications for alcohol and beer brands who want to work with gaming. And then coming out on Monday is an interview with Artie, a new mobile platform that's going to do uh, some interesting tech that that definitely might have some impacts. It's very, very early stage right now, but they've raised quite a bit of capital. And we're going to have their uh, CEO, I believe, a C-level exec for sure, on the show uh, coming out on Monday. So be on the lookout for that show coming soon.